This is the Advisory Board with Megan Flamer and Alan Jones. I'm interested to know mm. how you feel about giving speeches. Oh, I love getting up on a stage and talking to an audience. It's my favourite thing to do. You love it. Well, you've got to remember that I am a successful middle-aged white cis male. and. Oh, God, the- bitter taste in my mouth <laughs> <laughs> so you know we still rule the world and uh, and so I just you know I know I'm always going to get a you know unfairly good hearing from from the people that I talk to but no no it's also about you know building confidence over time telling a good story right we, we're both you know in the storytelling business and so if it's your thing it should be a happy place but it's usually for most people not their you know original happy place the happy place is yeah. the of the bedroom i i always felt awful getting up in front of people which was kind of tricky cuz i'm a musician and so you know i'd be doing a stedfords and things playing piano or singing and just feeling sick i would go and throw up beforehand and that carried over into giving pitches or you know I really loved working in radio and still do because I'm just here in the studio (laughs) where we get to just talk to a little piece of metal, which is a bit different from standing in front of thousands of people. Yeah, I think for most of us, you know, our first exposure to the chance to to do this is is early in in our school life, you know, and the teachers asks one by one people to come to the front of the class and read their little essay about what they did on the school holidays. And uh, it's pretty easy usually to hide at the back of the classroom and avoid the teacher's eyes and, you know, avoid all opportunities to do that. And I think, you know, life takes a, a fork at that early path where some of us get up there reluctantly and have a good first pitching experience and go, oh, it wasn't as bad as I thought. I'll try that again. And other of us, we bomb and we spend the rest of our lives and then our careers trying to avoid having to do that again. Yeah, and that embarrassing thing. I think I really appreciate that you acknowledge your white cis maleness. Because, you know, I've worked in television for a long time and one of the things that we really always noticed, and anyone who's currently working in TV, do let us know if this is still the case. I sadly think it probably is. But, you know, when a male presenter or a newsreader will make a mistake, people will write in and say, well, he flubbed that pronunciation or like this wasn't right or this information wasn't technically right or they're showing bias in this or, you know, they're engaging with what they're saying. When they have complaints about women, Mm. it's about their hair, their weight, their lipstick, the lapels of their shirt. Why Mm. are they wearing that terrible colour? And I've certainly had feedback about that where they were saying, you know, like, put on some mascara or like, you know, why aren't they wearing blush or blah, blah, blah. And I found similarly often I'll give talks and a lot of the talks that I give now are experiential. You know, I'm working in a field around consciousness and contemplative studies and looking at how people really deeply connect with themselves. But often the first thing people will say is like, gosh, that's a great suit or gosh, that's a beautiful dress or your hair looks amazing. And I'm thinking, how was the talk for you? <laughs> what, was, <laughs> what was the experience that you had there? Like what happened? It's all part of the same package yeah. though, right? Well, no, I, I don't think it is for men. Like, you know, even if you kind of consider how often would you not wear a hoodie Alan. Well, so so that's a brand. You know, that's a tech startup founder brand. Yes. And and, and, um, 
fortunate in that that was kind of already my brand and that was one of the things that drew me to the startup industry in the first place. Yes. I was working in the media industry originally. I was a tech reporter mm-hmm. centuries ago and um, <laughs> and and uh, the media industry in those days, as most professions, it, it, was, it was literally white collar. You had a white shirt on. You were considered bold and edgy if you wore a coloured shirt as a man. Yes. Um, so our uniform, you know, was was really pretty restricted. Um, and so there wasn't very much to to, to mess with, to, to personalise. You might change your tie, but even then, you know, pretty narrow set of, of options there on the tie front. And so when I saw, you know, I was reporting on the tech industry, I started to see people in the tech industry dress more casually. And I thought, oh, I want to I be more comfortable at work. You know, I'm a very warm-blooded person. I work up a sweat very, very easily. <laughs> and, uh, and so for me to wear a suit and, and a tie, I always found that really, really challenging. And so for me to wear a T-shirt and jeans was just nirvana. But it was, you know, it was a series of steps. I started out in media and then when we first went into startups, we started wearing business shirts but without a tie. And oh, Wow. Chinos. We wore chinos instead of suit pants, you know. (laughs) And then when we started wearing jeans instead of chinos, you know, they had to be tidy jeans. They had to be nice jeans, you know, none of that faded rubbish. Yeah, something with a a plate in the front. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know what came first, my, you know, hoodie and jeans preference or or, or whether I was attracted to the industry because they are already in in hoodies and jeans. But, but, um, you know, so, so I think... I'm already in my happy place in, in how I look when I stand up. I don't have to change anything. I don't have to shave or put on any makeup or unless I'm appearing yeah. on television. Uh, but um, I, I think as well, um, it, there's something magical about when you're on stage, whether you're on a panel or behind a microphone or a lectern, if, if you allow for the possibility that just being in that position kind of awards you the status of being an expert. You know, if somebody's paid... $500 to go to a big business conference and you're one of the speakers, the person in the audience who's paid all that money for a ticket starts out with the belief that you're probably an expert and this is going to be a great talk. And we're not always aware of that when we first stand on stage. All we can feel is our own imposter syndrome and our insecurity and our lack of preparation and you know whatever else is running around in our minds. If we can t- take a moment to... to Imagine that we're a successful cis white middle-aged male. Um, the confidence <laughs> of a mediocre white man, then you were uh, already Probably ahead. the audience were expecting us to be good, mm. you know, and, and, and we'll assume that we are good, you know, even if there's something eccentric and different about, about how we present to them. Mm. I think it, it is also the idea that you're there in service of the audience and I, I think we'll speak to this a little bit uh, with this letter, because often we're so in our own set of concerns, our self-concern and our self-consciousness, that you forget that you're there to deliver something and create something for the audience. So I'm hoping that this will be helpful for Life's A Pitch, who's written to us. Dear Advisory Board, I founded a startup and we're building an app and we're getting some good attention in the space with our platform. We have a pretty deck and it has great information about how our product works and the market, but we keep getting feedback that it's confusing and that we don't tell a good story. I pitched at a competition last week and the biggest feedback was, we don't get it. How do we stop bombing out in our pitches and how do we get good at it from Life's a Pitch? Megan, how many pitches do you reckon you might see in the course of a calendar year? (sighs) 
I mean, fewer now, which I'm, I've got to say I'm grateful for. <laughs> there were several years there where I was not only teaching pitch coaching, teaching people how to teach pitch coaching, doing vocal training with people and then listening to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pitches. Um, I reckon I've seen thousands and thousands and thousands of pitches mm. over mm. the over the last decade at mm. least, um, you know, even just being interested in it. I think it's one of the first ways that people connect with the startup industry. Mm. But I think also coming from a communications background as well, like a lot of the, you know, the training I think that we've both had and that we both deliver in this space is around how to be effective with pitching. Like for me, it's not separate to say accelerator training or startup development, entrepreneurial training, business development, the pitch sits alongside all of that. Yeah. And yeah. how you communicate about the changes that you're learning about and the changes that are occurring in the business to your bottom line, to the product, you know, yeah. you should be able to communicate about all of those things. And the, the scariest pitches are the ones where you get up in front of a, you know, the bright lights on a big stage with an audience of, of, of hundreds or, or perhaps thousands. But actually, you know, we very rarely get an opportunity to even do one of those. You mm. know? So it's, it's really, um, that's, that's something that most of us can, can relax about. That's probably never going to happen. And, and if, if we're given an opportunity to do that at some stage in our careers or in the growth of our business, then there are, there are coaches who can help us move on. Really, for most of us, it's the regular everyday pitches that, that we need to do. So yes, a pitch to a room full of investors, you know, at a, in a boardroom or a meeting room, that can be a little terrifying sometimes. Yeah. But if we start from the opposite end of the pitch spectrum, where mm -hmm. we're pitching to potential co-founders or early employees, or even just to recruit our family and friends to to be a supporter of the career change we're about to make or, or the new startup that we want to build or the big pivot that we want to take in the startup that we already have, if we focus on getting great at those sorts of pitches, we can learn the same sorts of skills that we can apply to to those more scary pitches down the I, track. I need to disagree with you here. Sure. I think you're assuming that big stage pitching, maybe that feels more scary for you, but it doesn't for everybody. Like for many people, getting up on a big stage with lights in their eyes is much easier because they can't see the audience. It feels maybe a little daunting because there's a lot of people there, but a sea of faces can feel a lot more comfortable. For many people, it's much more frightening to like walk up to someone at a party or mm. have a one-on-one, -on -one, have a difficult conversation. Like I think there's a spectrum of what people are afraid of and usually it's fear of looking stupid, fear of being exposed, fear of looking bad, you know, yeah, in true. any way that that occurs. So it, it's not necessarily about working up to that as the goal. I think it's about dealing with yourself in any given moment so that you can be effective at what you want to achieve and that'll be different for everybody. Mm, mm. But I, I do agree, like, with people that you feel more comfortable with or that you know, generally you can kind of practice, like, a pitch or a conversation and, and have an effective conversation and figure out how to do that. But, it, yeah, it, it's not always the same for every person. Yeah, maybe we're talking there about the difference between a, a, a cold pitch and a warm pitch, you know. So a warm pitch yeah. to, to a, a member of your family or to a close friend, that's somebody who wants you to be successful and they can see that what you're about to set out to do is inspiring to you and motivating for you and be very fulfilling for you if you're successful. And so they want you to succeed, so they're likely to give you very positive feedback on on your pitch. Um, so that's a that's a, a, a great place to start if if pitching in general is, is difficult for you, and it's an 
important um, mindset to switch to make though, to, to remember that even though it's a warm pitch and you don't necessarily always feel like you're pitching to someone, it is a pitch. Yeah. You know, and the difference between a pitch and a, and a constructive conversation with someone is, is that you're looking to achieve change out of it. You know, you're looking for buy-in. You're looking for somebody to get on board. You're looking for somebody to think of a way that they might be able to help. To, to be amplify inspired to action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so a pitch is when we change the mind of, of the person that we're pitching to. Yes. Um, and, and so um, if we approach those people who we can be fairly confident that we will get a positive reaction from, no matter how good or bad our storytelling skills are, mm-hmm. then, you know, we can, we, that can be a, a starting point. And then we can go from there to, okay, now this time I'm going to hop into this Uber and try and persuade my driver that yes. what I'm working on, you know, really matters. Yes. And then after that, you know, maybe, you know, the white person at the restaurant or, you know, a person that, that we find ourselves sitting next to at a wedding reception or, or in a party situation. Um, and those sorts of pitches, you know, do you remember the, the Gaddy pitch? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Gaddy. Should we explain the Gaddy pitch to yeah. people? And yeah. And I think just to, to pull back a little bit Sorry, as well, yeah. like pitching I think has this really strong, you know, startup kind of feel to it, but you can use this training and all of these pieces for any industry that you work in. You can literally, and the Gaddy is such a perfect example, like if you're trying to convince your partner that you guys should get a new car or if you're trying to talk someone into getting a puppy or, you know, if you're having any big conversation, um, these are really effective ways of winning someone over or getting someone inspired or moving them into some action. Mm. So I think it's always good to remember that being an effective communicator and creating something to be real or exciting for another person is an amazing life skill. Mm. And most of what you have to deal with is, yes, being effective and knowing how to have those conversations, but ultimately it's dealing with yourself a lot. So just to give an example, you know, you were talking about warm pitches or, you know, cold rooms, that sort of thing. I'm kind of famous in pitch rooms and demo days for being what they call the soccer mum. So I sit up the back <laughs> and I make sure I'm smiling and nodding and I'm a bit kind of like that, you know. Are you shouting you at the this? referee? No, but I'm like, you got this, honey. Like, you you know, I'm trying to be encouraging with my face and my body language because I notice that people perform better when there's someone encouraging in the space. And I'm not doing anything to them. I'm not saying like, yeah, I'm going to buy this or anything like that. I'm just making sure that they've got a warm somewhere in the crowd where they can see someone. And I've noticed that having that person in the crowd makes people more effective. And I want that. I want them to win. I want them to pitch well. And so I I always do that in the- Just laughing about you being a soccer mom. Ruby, Ruby, move on from the engagement and tell them about your revenue numbers, Ruby. Tell me more about your customer research. No, so I always make sure I do that. And I've heard many people talk about, you know, even going into a job interview, for example, and they'll be doing a job interview for a new job with a team they already have, maybe their current boss. And the current boss, you know, will be looking down the whole time and not engaging with them and maybe being really cold. So you might think that's a warm room where it's going to be easy, but in the moment it might not be. It'll be cold or you'll feel like you don't have any engagement or you're just, and you, how you deal with yourself in that moment how you are able to soothe yourself, calm yourself down, be effective when things don't go the way that you expect. The Mm. microphone doesn't work. Mm. Your slide deck fails. The Mm. lights go off. Someone heckles you from the crowd, whatever that is. 
One of the things that I really notice is the more that you practice this, the more you get great at having this conversation with your Uber driver, having a conversation with the weight person or with your family or with your friends, the repetition is the key. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and in my own pitch training workshops with startup founders, I talk about how pitching is acting and and we can learn about how to be great at pitching by learning from the profession of acting. Yes. First principle of acting is you always start with a script, you know, Mm -hmm. a deck is not a script. Yes. A deck is a support tool. A deck, if, if we were actors, a deck would be the set and the costumes and the soundtrack and you know all those things that support what we're there to say. Yes. But it's actually us who deliver the narrative and we start with a script. And you don't learn a script by glancing at it once and you don't learn a script by starting with it in your head and just delivering it slightly differently every time you stand up on stage. So... A pitch works really, really well when you nail a script and then you memorise it by rehearsing it. Oh, I disagree with you on this as well. No, no, no. No, no, no. I'm right and you are wrong. (laughs) I disagree with this depending on how people learn and Mm. depending on how well they they read for meaning. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you and I have both worked in media a bunch and we've done a lot of things. I've worked as a newsreader for a long time. So a lot of what we do is read for meaning. You're good at reading. You're good at translating that. You're good at putting inflection in the right place, just generally. A lot of people do not have that skill and they're not good at doing that. And I find if they're trying to memorise their script, and especially if they're underprepared, but some people are just not good at memorising. And some people are not great at memorising inflection, so they're just parroting the words Mm -hmm. rather than parroting the meaning. Mm -hmm. So depending on, you know, if I'm coaching someone in in how to pitch, depending on how they're delivering and if they're getting good at that, you also want to look for where they're looking. So if they're looking in the top right-hand corner or looking in the top left-hand corner where they're just trying to remember the script. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be remembering the line. You want to be remembering the theme Mm -hmm. and the thing to talk about. So I think those are both valid. Like I think Learning a script initially is great, but generally I advise them to work off themes. Well, yet again, I think we're coming back to a point of common understanding. Again, yeah. we're starting to disagree. I'm saying, <laughs> and yes, I agree with you. For mm-hmm. sure, that's the case. And I think what happens, even when you've got somebody who's not great at reading for meaning, mm-hmm. I think over time they become familiar enough with the script and they stop looking top right, trying to remember what it is that they have to say next. Yes. And, and they start instinctively delivering the meaning. You know, with, with you know, it, they deliver a version of the story which is inspired by the script which they now know off by heart. Because if you include stage direction, mm-hmm. um, where we're talking about where to pause, how, where to increase your intonation, where to change your pitch or your volume, where to stand on the stage, what to do with these two things, these big hands that <laughs> listeners can't see. I don't know what to do with my hands. Yeah. <laughs> so when, when we include all of that stage direction and the body starts to, to take over and then the voice follows the body as well. Um, so I've, I've often had some success with people who are terrible at reading for meaning, but once they get past the point where it's just reciting what's been memorized, they can start to learn how to make it their own and kind of live that script. 
This is the advisory board with me, Megan Flamer. And me, Alan Jones. And we're talking all things pitchy. pitchy. Pitch, yeah. Today. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, before about the Gaddy pitch. Yes. Why don't you run us through why this is just a magical little piece of technology? Oh my gosh. When I first heard about the Gaddy pitch, I imagined it was something from like 1950s real <laughs> estate sales, you know, from Glenn, yeah. Gary like, Glenn Ross. The Gaddy pitch. Coffee now with more coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it seems once you learn, and it seems like just such a timeless piece of wisdom that's yeah. applicable to so many situations. But actually it's not. There is a guy, um, a guy called Gaddy, and I believe he's a native of Melbourne. Um, I googled, googled him once. I'm a bit fuzzy Anthony on the detail Gaddy, now. Anthony Gaddy, Anthony Gaddy, yeah. And maybe it's it. only like 10 years old. Anyway, a Gaddy pitch is the most powerful and flexible kind of a pitch um, that anybody in entrepreneurship can ever have. You can use it in every situation. And the perfect example is when you're at a barbecue, you have to make polite conversation with the person next to you and you can talk about the quality of the sausages <laughs> or the weather or, you know, all these screaming kids running around with too much birthday cake in them. Um, and, you know, often what you'll do is just say, so what do you do? Or they'll say to you, so what do you do? So when somebody asks you what you do, they don't really care what you do. I mean, they're hoping <laughs> that you're not an endocrinologist or a paint lawyer. I would love to talk to an endocrinologist. <laughs> yeah, but you and I are exceptions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We are strange humans. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people, you know, there are a lot of career um, dead ends <laughs> where nobody knows how to ask a follow-up question to an endocrinologist except you, right? So, so. <laughs> Um, you have an opportunity there because if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a startup founder, if, mm. if you've got a new kind of business, then um, then that's a fertile ground for somebody to get into a really interesting conversation with you. Mm. And the point of a Gaddy pitch is to get somebody out of pitch and into conversation. And you're still being compelling. You're still telling an interesting story. Mm-hmm. But you're actually encouraging them to ask you the questions and unpack the story through question and answer because that never feels like you're being sold to if you're involved yeah. in a conversation with somebody. And most importantly, it's short and it's not a sales pitch. Like it's it's a great formula, mm-hmm. which I love, but I also feel like it's one of the first things that we ever do in a pitch coaching situation because it's such a great distiller yes. of, you know, so many ideas, but it's like less is more. It follows the golden rule of threes. Mm-hmm. So there are three parts to a Gaddy pitch. The first part is a sentence that begins with, you know how, mm-hmm. ellipsis, dot, dot, dot. The second part is, well, what we do is, dot, dot, dot. And then the third part is, as a matter of fact, ellipsis, dot, dot, dot. So three parts. Yeah. You know how, well, what we do is, and... As a matter of fact, do you want to take turns at unpacking yeah. those three? Well, why don't, why don't I just try like, you know, you know how your dog always poops in the middle of the sidewalk just <laughs> after you've gotten a coffee. Well, what we do is we've designed this amazing belt where you can pop your coffee cup into the side of the belt. So you don't have to put the coffee cup on the stinky, disgusting sidewalk okay. when you're picking up the poop while the dog mm-hmm. looks at you expectantly. As a matter of fact, we've already designed and prototyped this belt and it's going into production next week. Oh, that's amazing. Can I have a turn? Yeah. <laughs> so you know how <laughs> the, the, the programming and the content of, of, of uh, commercial radio hasn't changed in like 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what Except we do at Disrupt Radio. radio. <laughs> <laughs> what we do at Disrupt Radio is, is, you know, we've got program for a new generation all about entrepreneurship and all about startups and creating new kinds of businesses and new kinds of industries because that's 
what the world is now, right? Yeah. And as a matter of fact, we already have several hundred thousand listeners a month that will shortly have much more details for advertisers on. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so, awesome. so there's two good examples of a Gatti pitch. The important things about, about those three parts of a Gatti pitch is, is the first bit is we state the problem in terms that the customer might understand. Yeah. You know? So when we're talking about, you know, your poo, your dog pooing <laughs> on, on the pavement right when you're getting a coffee, for a lot of people will go, yeah, like they'll nod their head. I've had to do they'll this. They know how that feels. Right? Yes. So the sign of a good you know how is when the person you say that to nods their head. Right. Mm. So if you if you're an endocrinologist and you say, um, well, you know how sometimes your 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 lymph gets uh, out of whack, you know, and suddenly your LFT scores are through the roof. You're not going to get a lot of nods from people. <laughs> you know? People will be like, ah, uh, that is endocrinology, LFT? isn't it? Is that, yeah, I think I it's endocrinology. I don't actually know. I yeah, feel I like so. endocrinology is more like you know. You know how you get hot flushes sometimes and you're a little worried you're perimenopausal? Well, what we do is... So, so that's the sign of a good you-know-how. And, mm-hmm. and the importance of you-know-how is, is usually when you're using a gaddy pitch with someone, they don't really care what you do. They're mm-hmm. just that, that you've been asked a question just as polite conversation. And so you have to build a bridge between where your audience is now and where you're going to take them next. So you can't yeah. just talk begin talking about your revolutionary new space launch technology. Yeah, and most importantly, it is about the other person. Yeah. And I think that's what we often forget. And life's a pitch. I, I love that you're really getting that people are saying we don't get it because mm. that's the important thing. You can think you've got a very pretty deck and you can think you've got great information about how the product works and the market. If you're mm. getting feedback that it's confusing and it's not landing with people, Take it back to basics. Like every member of your team should be getting at least a Gaddy pitch done. Mm. And this is something that Al and I have forced many a founder and everyone on the team to do. As part of an accelerator program, for example, we would get every single member of the startup to do a Gaddy pitch, to pitch, because Mm. everyone should be able to articulate what their role is in the company, what the company does, why it's important. And there might be different groups who are excited about this for everyone. So as an example, you know, to use the dog poop example, because a lot of my examples use dog poop, Mm. you know, Right now I'm talking to someone who's a dog owner and I know that because we're standing in the dog park or we're at the barbecue and I know they've got a dog. And so I'm talking to them like, you know how, Mm. you know, when you're walking the dog and blah, blah, blah. But if I am trying to sell that same product and trying to get someone different excited about it, it might be to someone who owns a cafe, for example, Mm. you know how the front of the cafe is always covered in dog poop and it's a really disgusting space. Well, what we do is create a product that stands in the way or, you know, helps people um, manage their dog waste themselves rather than leaving it behind because they don't want to put their coffee down somewhere, you know. So you tailor your gaddy, your pitch, whatever it is that you're talking about, to the audience. The audience is the important thing. Yeah, but, you know, Megan, I'm working on something very, very technical and, you know, we're, we're, we're doing quantum physics here, we're doing NFTs and we're on the blockchain. Um, how much industry jargon and how many acronyms can I use in a, in a good Gaddy pitch? It depends on the audience, but for a Gaddy pitch, none. None, 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 none. And so it necessary, should be so simple. Yeah, if necessary, if, if, if your audience has, you know, z- zero chance that they've ever heard of anything that you're working on. Yes. Use analogy and metaphor. 
Yes. You know? so, so you know good. how it gives you an opportunity to talk about something in their world that they will not because they understand yes. that. And it's not exactly what you're working on, but it's metaphorically something similar. Yes, absolutely. And just making it super simple. If you can't make it super simple, mm. it's so irrelevant. I, I hate that I'm bringing everything back to it being men. <laughs> <laughs> because men. Um, but it, it has often happened where someone will say, you know, oh, but you just don't get it because you're not, you know, a software engineer or you don't get mm. it because you're not a rocket scientist. And I'm like, yes, but neither are most of the investors that you're going to talk to. Mm-hmm. Neither are most of the people who are going to try and invest in you. You need to keep it simple. If they ask you more complicated questions or if they ask you for feedback about it or more detail or blueprints or super complicated bits and pieces about it or getting someone in the room who is mm. an aeronautical engineer, fantastic. Yeah, great. Then let's do that. We can all learn about those things to the point where I'm going to want to sign a check for you. But you are alienating people. You sound arrogant and mm. dicky as anything. Mm. It's just terrible. And you need to be able to show the mass appeal of this and you can't show the mass appeal if you're using language that's only relevant to 0.5% of the population. Totally, totally. As I find every time I go to an NFT event. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> I feel differently uh, about that, but yes. <laughs> so once you've, got, once you've got your Gaddy pitch nailed and once you can persuade any endocrinologist at the barbecue that you're working <laughs> on something interesting and they engage with you in a conversation and you've got them wondering if they can introduce you to their friend, um, then where do we go from here? How do we take a Gaddy pitch into, okay, now I've got a pitch to a room of potential customers or to an investor in a coffee shop? What changes from, from here to there? I know, you know, as an investor, I know I want a little bit more detail on the metrics of the company. Yes. I mean, there are a bunch of slides that you should be adding in. We often use it as a sort of slide deck analogy where we start talking about like who the customer is, mm-hmm. where those customers live, what's your go-to-market strategy. We really want to just have one idea per slide and you're constantly looking at what is pertinent for each of those pieces. So one idea per slide could mean like our ideal customer is X. We know Mm. this because. Mm. So not just throwing out random sort of bits and pieces. Again, you're making it clear. You're making it actionable. Personally, when I'm watching a pitch, I want to understand the the who, what, why, where and when, you know, what that looks like, understanding those and how Mm. and understanding those key pieces. But I'm also looking for what levers have you pulled Mm -hmm. and will you pull to make this successful? Mm -hmm. And those are always the questions that I'll be asking around the go-to-market, the marketing, the how you're going to get customers, how you're going to retain customers, how you're going to deliver the product. I need you to know how to make that happen or I need you to show me how you've already failed. Yeah. <laughs> so I yeah. understand how you think and how you work and what you've already ruled out. Yeah, how did you get to here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. For me, how did you get to here is usually a much more interesting part of the story than what we're going to do next. Yes. Because most of what we're going to do next, you know, is a plan, but it's based on hypotheses. Yes. You know, which have yet to be tested in the market. And so it's interesting to see, you know, 
how ambitious you might be in your future plans um, and also perhaps, you know, how realistic. And I want to see the right sort of, ba- right sort of balance between ambition and, and realism mm-hmm. in people's future plans. But at the end of the day, I'd much rather understand how you got to this point because this, if you're pitching to an investor, this is when you're hoping that they will invest. And so if you tell them too much about the future, they may decide, well, you know, perhaps I can postpone my decision whether or not to invest in the company until I've seen you achieve some of these ambitious goals you set yourself. Yes. Um, the other thing that I would encourage people to do is, you know, certainly as you're saying, there are some, the who, what, where, why, and, and how, and when, um, uh, they tend to follow a, a familiar format in, yes. in, in startup pitches, right? They go, this is the customer. This is the problem that they face. This is the existing solution to the problem and why it's broken. This is our better solution to the problem and why it's superior. Yes. This is the progress that we've made so far. This is what we hope to do next. This is our rock star team that's going to ensure that of all the different competitors doing this, we're going to be the one that's, that, that succeeds. Um, and then here's what we need from you. Here's, this is the ask. This is what we yeah, need from the you. the ask is the thing that so, so many people leave out as well. Yeah. So, so when you see... Th- that same story, that narrative arc again and again and again and again, fatigue does set in and you start to zone out. So so one way to, to, to mix that up is, is to start to talk about the future first mm-hmm. and then come back to the present and then go back to the past to talk about why you're, you're taking this path instead of other paths towards the future. Um, so most pitches start in the past, go to the now and then go to the future. You can mix it up a bit and perk up the interest of your audience. You know, imagine, imagine a world, imagine a world <laughs> which has already been made better because yeah. our startup succeeded and then yeah. come to the past and the, and the present. So mess with the timeline a bit. That can be a good way to get through investor fatigue. Another way to mess with it is actually to consciously leave one or more of those who were, why, where and how's out. Yes. Because if somebody's interested by the rest of the pitch, then they'll have questions around that. And they'll say, so I noticed you didn't mention the, the, the pricing and, and how you arrived at the pricing for the product. Can you tell me more about that? Yes. When you're prepared to answer that question because you deliberately left it out of the pitch, that gives you an opportunity to say to the person who asked that question, oh, that's a great question, Megan. I'm really impressed that you, that you got to that so quickly and I've only just finished telling you about, about our plans. Let me answer that for you. Right? Yes. So I get to reward the person who's asked a question that makes them feel clever. Mm. That's a nice, that's a, and, and now we're out of the pitch and into a conversation because you've asked a question. The moment we go into questions and answers, we're not in a pitch situation anymore and mm. that person's starting to come along with us in a journey. So it's not such a bad idea to leave something out every now and again, as long as you're anticipating that that question will come up and you're prepared to answer it. Yes. I think the other big piece that I want to make sure we include here is that you should not only have one pitch. Mm. You should have so many pitches. Mm. You should have pitches for being live on stage in front of a lot of people where you won't be asked questions. You Mm. should have pitches where you will leave those gaps so that you can control the conversation a little more and make sure that you are asked particular questions. You should have a pitch deck that is sent out to investors and then the pitch deck that you would use to support an investment conversation in the room. You should have a pitch for school children. You Mm. should have a pitch for family and friends. You should have a pitch for different audiences, for people who do understand endocrinology and for people who do not. It is so important that you would have different lengths of pitch and different complications of pitch, some of them which will only have writing on them and other ones which will be all pictures. Like 
that practice and the process of getting very good at preparing different pitches, updating pitch decks and having a whole folder and folio of pitches that you can pull on and draw on at any given moment. So if someone calls you and says, hey, we've got a pitch event happening on Friday and it's for an environmental theme, Hmm. you're able to grab one of your pitches. It's three minutes. You know that it is. You're ready to go and you can put an environmental lens on it and bang, you're doing that pitch on stage. Yeah, I love what you had to say about you being in service of your audience and and every audience is different. So every pitch, need you need to be capable of recrafting every pitch that you have to make it in service to that particular audience that you're going to be pitching to next. Absolutely. Yeah. I think life's a pitch. If we leave you with nothing else, it's that you just need to practice, 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 practice. 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 And be testing this pitch out with as many people as you can. Don't hide it away. It's awesome that you've taken this feedback and you're immediately doing something about it. So I would really take on board that feedback. When people are saying, we don't get it, be specific. Tell them, like, is they don't get your haircut. <laughs> they don't understand, you know, why you're talking about this in a particular order. Maybe you've tried to be a bit too creative or a bit too complicated. Maybe you need to take it down to its basic pieces or parts. I would start with a gaddy. Totally. Get it down to super simple and then get someone patient to sit there with you and, and go through, you know, what do you not get? What's complicated about it? And then listen, listen to what they have to say. Take that feedback on board and you'll be pitching beautifully in no time. So, Alan, what would you say to life's a pitch? Where do they go from here? So I would say start with a script and and taking on your points before about how, you know, some people need to read for meaning and other people literally need to memorise every word. If you're a word memoriser, then go the whole script, write it all down um, word for word. And, and if you're just reading for meaning, work with bullet points. But in either way, once you've got a script, then you can be sure every time you rehearse your pitch, you're rehearsing the same pitch so that that pitch gets better and better and better over time. The way to rehearse from a script is to read a line and then put the script away and deliver the line. Hmm. So every time we have a deck open on screen behind us or in front of us on a laptop, um, when we are talking, we are always talking to that deck because we can see it, it's right there in front of us or it's right there on the wall behind us. And so we'll keep turning and talking to the deck instead of making eye contact with our audience. And Mm. we want them to believe in us, not the deck that should be supporting what we're saying. And it's human connection as well, right? That's why we're doing it. And your brain has this amazing talent where it goes, oh, well, I can see the script in front of me, so I don't have to remember it, right? So every time you're rehearsing a script, start with the first line, the first couple of lines, put the script away and deliver the lines and see if you can do that successfully. Once you've got the first few lines, then read the next few lines and see if you can stitch together, okay, now I'm going to do the first few lines and then the next few lines. And remember that script's got to be away while you do that, right? So when you're just reading a script or reading from bullet points or reading from a deck, you're not learning anything. You're not remembering anything. So you've got to put that away. You've got to take those crutches off and, and put them to one side if you're going to learn to walk. I do it very differently. Go so, And I also feel like... Um, there's, I mean, neurodiversity is an enormous mm-hmm. factor here as well. Like some people are fantastic at memorising things and memorising speeches and, and bits and pieces. I, I tend to write out a, a whole speech or a whole deck or, you know, against each slide, I'll have a whole script that I'll just write it out just to kind of get it out of my head and just to have it all down. 
and then I don't look at it again. I put mm. dot points for each piece um, and I try and get close to the dot points and make sure that I hit each of the dot points. And if you do have the benefit of having, um, you know, one of those double screens or split screens where you can have your slides and, you know, let's say if you're yeah, giving a speech or something like that. Then if you're but, in a coffee shop, you can't count on having that. No. And over time though, you are you are learning to do lots of different pitches. Yep. Like I feel like speaking thematically about it and really knowing your material and really nailing mm. the material is the important thing, mm. not memorising words or lines because the more people are in the space of memorising words or lines, they're not present. They're trying to remember something as opposed to being present with the person they're speaking to. And so I really advise against that. But mm -hmm. I, I also think try what works for you. Some people are so great at memorising and they're just able to, to rattle it off. But generally I've found it's much more effective if you get people away from being worried about the memorisation and being concerned about having it land over there for the other people because I also feel like that helps enormously with the nerves. If you're more concerned about how people are nodding, whether or not they're nodding, how you can connect with them, are they connecting with it? then that's the important thing. Listeners, I'm reaching across to Megan's laptop and I'm going to shut it so she can't read her, her lines. I have no notes or lines. I have thematic dot points. Let's see how she goes with the next break. <laughs> You're listening to DAV Plus oh, and Disrupt Dot Radio with me, Megan Flamer. And me, Alan Jones. I can do a sting in my sleep, sir. Oh, damn, you're good. <laughs> but no, I think we're really talking about the fact that we want people to connect Ultimately, we want your idea and your yep. vision and your excitement to yep. be infectious. So whatever will have that be more present for you, the more that's going to translate on stage, in a room. Be genuinely excited. Let yourself be excited. Yeah, be real. Yeah. yeah, be real. Be excited. If you flub a line or a word, that doesn't matter as much as having your excitement land with another person. That's what we're here to do. She's right again, listeners. <laughs> We love having you join us. Make sure you contribute your questions. If you've got a big burning question. Come at us. Yeah, let us know. You can reach out to either Alan or myself on LinkedIn or on Instagram or to disrupt.radio. You can tune in to us live between 11am and 1pm on DAB Plus or you can jump on disrupt.radio and listen to us anytime. We will be back very soon. On Disrupt Radio, you'll hear Simon Reynolds. The Business Lounge. Fred Shabestra, worth hundreds of millions, founder of findit.com, the finance, insurance and utilities comparison site. So you've got to move the, you know, like Sun, so you've got to move the playing field outside of their territory. Mm. What is everyone else not doing that is actually the better opportunity? How are you going to create some alpha? What is an industry? It's basically a whole bunch of companies copying each other and trying to benchmark against each other to get exactly the same return. Yeah, so true. And so price is basically going to go down and margin is going to be eroded. Yeah. The Business Lounge with Simon Reynolds. Spotlighting the most inspiring and tenacious self-made entrepreneurs. Yeah, I mean, it's the battle between optimization, which is the game they're playing, and innovation. Check in with business guru Simon Reynolds in the Business Lounge. Live on DAV+, online and on demand at disrupt.radio.